Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Today we have Michael Petrilli. He is president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and editor of Education Next. He is one of the nation's leading observers, commentators, thinkers of K-12 education. Today he's going to give us a primer on where K-12 education stands. You have five minutes, Michael, go. Okay, no problem. <laughs> well, w- w- welcome, welcome, Mike. <laughs> Great to be here, Mark. Appreciate you having me on your show. So l- let's start with recent news in education. We had NAEP scores come out about a month ago, mm-hmm. uh, a month and a half ago, that actually were, uh, were a little bit uh, distressing to some people. There's a lot of discussion about those. And uh, first of all, maybe tell us what is NAEP yeah. and what were those recent results? Sounds good. Well, so yes, let's back up a little bit. So NAEP stands for the National Assessment of Educational Progress, oftentimes called the Nation's Report Card. This is a set of tests that have been given now since the late 60s uh, at regular intervals. And the most recent scores that we're talking about here are in reading and in math. Uh, There's, of course, uh, other times when we get to see how kids are doing in writing and science and history, civics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, but but we do look at reading and math more frequently now every two years. The the big picture mark is that if if you look over the last quarter century, it's first a story of some remarkable progress, especially for the lowest performing kids in our country who tend to be the lowest income kids in our country. These were the kids that really were the focus back in the 90s and 2000s when, when you think about the no child left behind era. Uh, back under George W. Bush, you know, the focus on saying, you know, we've got to get all kids up to at least basic literacy and numeracy in, uh, in these core subjects. And there was a lot of progress. Uh, in fact, huge progress from the late 90s into the about the 2000s, you know, say 2009, 2010. Uh, the, the test scores for those lowest performing kids skyrocketed. Uh, but since then, uh, we have not had as good of news. It's been quite flat and even in some respects down. And what we saw in the latest test score results was that especially those lowest performing kids have lost ground since 2010 or so. Uh, more flat for other students and a little bit of progress even for the students at the very top, our highest ach- achieving students. That, 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 sounds, that sounds almost like uh, you know, the, the, the greater inequality that we see where the top 20 percent they're they're rising right the the bottom i don't know 30 or 40 percent they're losing so the gap the gap is growing that's right that's right now again the gap in achievement that is not necessarily the income gap although those things do overlap to a a large degree and again that is a a reversal of what we had been seeing uh for the decades before that where the gap was closing to some degree Uh, Now, look, what you really want is you want everybody to make more progress. It does matter that kids at the top are doing better. We want them to do better. These are uh, highest achieving kids who are likely to go on to uh, not just college, but graduate school who are, you know, have the best chance of being, uh, you know, the folks who are going to earn patents someday and be uh, driving the innovation economy. So uh, this is good news if, if our high achieving students are doing somewhat better. Uh, To be clear, they're still not doing great, but, uh, but they're making progress. But it is at that low end that we see this big this big decline recently. And of course, there's a lot of debate. Why is it that our lower performing students are not doing well? There's still a lot happening out there in the world of K-12 education reform. You, you, you actually had a, a paper giving the three theories yep. about why, what might be happening in our schools to explain why in the last NAEP, which was just fourth and eighth graders, yep. Why we saw, uh, uh, I mean, I saw, you know, your your colleague, Checker Finn, 
said that he thought this was really significant, this mm-hmm. loss mm-hmm. in the last few years. What what were the three theories that you have that explain this this dip? Well, to be clear, they are three theories, but they're only only one of them is really about schools and okay. two of them are about things that happen outside of schools. And and that is not surprising because look, Mark, we we always have known for for 50 years or more that test scores are hugely related to kids' backgrounds, to what's happening in the home and what's happening in their community. That's not surprising because, of course, children spend most of their time from age zero to 18 outside of schools, especially in those young ages. And we know those, you know, zero to five ages matter a lot. So what's happened? Well, you know, one theory is it's the Great Recession. We are still living with the with the fallout from the Great Recession, that you, you look at the kids that did particularly poorly on this last exam, the eighth graders, they were very young children when the Great Recession hit and during those terrible years of high unemployment. Uh, and then they went to school at a time when we were actually making spending cuts to our schools, something that, would, that uh, despite what you might hear in the news, almost never actually happens. We, uh, you know, in, in most cases, a spending cut means we're just not giving as big a raise as we did <laughs> so last that's year. That's what it usually is, right? Yeah. That's just like we're used to with, say, the federal budget. But actually, back in 2013, 2014, there was a real year over year decline uh, and in some places, pretty significant decline. So, you know, if you imagine if you're a low-income child in, in a in a you know single-parent family and facing all the challenges that you always face with poverty, and then things get even worse because of the Great Recession, and then your school has less money to spend. Of course, thanks to all the ways our school system is messed up, uh, the school systems did not deal with those spending cuts thoughtfully. For example, by using it to remove ineffective teachers, they just got rid of the young teachers, or they did other things that weren't. Uh, terribly constructive. So, just, just a quick point: NAEP does include private school students, correct? And it, proportionate it yes. uh, yep. measures of of the total population. That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. And and again, and to my understanding, you don't see many differences recently in these trends if you break it out by private or public. So that indicates again, this may be about stuff happening outside of schools. Mm-hmm. So that's one theory: is that a lot of what we're seeing is the fallout from the Great Recession. That even though that's in the rearview mirror now, and even though the economy is booming now, when the kids were really little and quite impressionable, and when they first entered school and say were in kindergarten, first grade, and, and needed to be learning those basic skills, maybe they didn't do as well mm-hmm. uh, because of what was happening back then. Uh, so that's theory number one. Uh, theory number two is a topic near and dear to your heart. I know it's. The screens. Ugh. It's those dastardly phones. Uh, I see this in my son. Uh, it it <laughs> is. Look, we. I think any of us with kids know that this is a huge change in in a childhood and adolescence. Of course, we all know. Any of us that own a phone know it's a huge change, uh, just writ large in our society, have an impact uh, in all kinds of things. And so we should not be surprised if it may have an impact in learning. There's some very disturbing studies that have come out lately showing that yes, not surprisingly. When little kids spend a lot of time on phones, on screens, uh, it gets in the way of their ability to learn. Uh, and we've also seen some some very upsetting statistics showing that uh, that there's been a significant rise in screen time for the lowest income kids. And and you you actually had a chart in one of in in, in one of your reports showing that there actually is an. Uh, a slightly inverse relationship between income and screen mm-hmm. use. Right. So that the, the these top performing kids from high income kids actually spend less time with screens. And yeah. re- I mean, you yeah. rem- remember when we were worried about the, the digital gap? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we do not need to worry about that digital divide so much. Look, I, right. my understanding is that there has always been a gap that in the in the past 
it was television. And it was that poor kids were spending a lot more time watching TV than more affluent kids. And and you can understand why. If if you are a single parent, uh, if you're working two jobs, if you're living in a dangerous neighborhood, maybe the best option for your child in terms of daycare is to plop them in front of the TV. Sesame Street. Yeah. And if it's Sesame Street, maybe it's not so bad. Now, probably isn't always Sesame Street, but so there you go. So that's not new. What does seem to be new is, I think, because of how uh, accessible phones are, how ubiquitous phones are, uh, you've seen this big increase among lower-income families in screen time use. I think for more affluent families who tend to be more educated, you know, there is still this sense we all have this guilt. We have this social pressure that says, you know, we know we shouldn't be letting our kids stare at their screens all the time. And perhaps that's keeping at least some bit of a lid on the screen time use. It's still a lot. Right. Uh, but and especially when kids are little and we have the resources for other activities, we have resources for babysitters or nannies or all of that. Uh, that makes it easier to keep your kids off of screens. You know, if you're poor, uh, you may not have that. And of course, we know poor families, they, they have phones, they have these smartphones, you know, we know poor teenagers have. I mean, they're everywhere. And uh, so that's another question is, could it be that we see the screen time use is, is having an impact. And what's interesting, Mark, you know, there was an international test that came out recently. And there we, should, we were mostly relatively flat. We're below average in math, a little above average in reading and in science, but our scores were flat. Many of our competitor nations, other affluent countries, actually saw declines. And, you know, countries like South Korea that we've always looked up to as being these, these juggernauts educationally, they're still way ahead of us, yeah. but they've shown declines. And it makes you wonder... You know, given that phones and screens are such a global phenomena, is that possibly driving down learning all over the planet? So, so Mike, if if a if a school designer, if a charter school designer came to you and and sort of came to Fordham and said, "What is your general position on on computers in classrooms, on on screen, you know, blended yeah. education?" What what would be your 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 broad advice? Yeah, look, look. Well, I, because some I think some of our listeners are involved in in creating you sure. know private schools, charter schools. Yeah. Well, I I think we need to make a distinction. Mostly, what I've been talking about here is what happens at home. You know, the vast time and after school on the weekends, summer. I uh, I think uh, a different question is you know how to use the six or seven hours most effectively when kids are at school. And I do think that there is a role for some technology. Uh, because there's going to be time. Let, let's take an elementary school. Uh, most elementary schools are going to be organized in a way where there's some time where the, the teacher has small group instruction working on basic reading skills or math skills. That's, that tends, we, we know from a lot of evidence that works. So the other, the, the other kids need to be doing something, right? Uh, they could be working at their desks, doing some writing. They could be doing some reading, all of which they should be doing. I think it's okay if they're spending some of their time doing some things on screens. And if you're in a school setting, you can make sure that time is as productive as possible, that they're not wasting it playing games, uh, but that they're doing things like uh, they could be watching educational videos that have a lot of content knowledge and that are teaching them about history or about science. Uh, you know, they could be doing some interactive uh, kinds of uh, practice uh skill building activities that can help them with some of their basic skills. They could be practicing their keyboarding skills, which they now need to learn how to how to type on a keyboard. So I, I would not say that it should be zero. Now, I, I certainly respect schools that say we're going to do zero because we know they're getting so much of it at home and we want to get at these things another way. I think that's fine. Uh, to my mind, the bigger question is if you're going to start a charter school, and especially if it's a high poverty charter school serving a lot of poor kids, 
Uh, what are you going to do to try to influence what your kids are doing when they're not at school? And how can you get parents to buy into this notion that, look, it is a problem if the kids are on screens uh, doing junk stuff uh, all you know hours and hours a day or all weekend long. Let's give you some ideas for some other things you could do, maybe some other resources. You know, it's another argument for why so many of these high-performing charter schools have these longer school days or come in on Saturdays. It's, you know, <laughs> you want to give something wholesome for kids to do because if they're not doing something wholesome, they're going to be staring at screens. Right, right. And you know that there are high schools, like there's one out in Oakton, uh, outside D.C., that is a very, very high-tech school. But the academic climate there is so strong mm-hmm. and, and the focus on content, yeah. on knowledge, on learning, not just the, the tools right. themselves, that they actually get, uh, they, they get a lot of high performers mm-hmm. coming out of that school. I think they're an Apple school. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 you know, Apple gives awards to, to, to certain schools. So that they, and, and those kids there, uh, they're they're coming out of those homes that emphasize again the the the, the academic ideal right. within which then you then you can have the screens and and look you know we, we always have to be careful not to generalize I as a dad have found a lot of surprisingly great stuff on YouTube right now in general it's a complete cesspool <laughs> so no, no, but... you know a lot of horrible stuff or just a lot of junk and mindless. But you can actually also find that there are some channels out there no. creating these amazing... Uh, no, the Khan little, Academy uh, Yeah, those Khan Academy, are, are but not great. just that, and, but there's some other guys out there that are just nobody's heard of. I've written about some of them that are creating great little history videos and there's some great right. geography stuff. And there's So you can find there's gems out there to find and if you take the time and effort to curate it. Now, you know, it's hard and you're constantly fighting with your kids about what they, what they really want to be doing is you know, playing Minecraft, maybe that's not so bad, or watching some, you know, YouTuber, you know, uh, play a right. video game, uh, not quite so nutritious, or, you know, even worse, the social media stuff, yeah. you know, that that we now know really seems to be having a negative impact. And, and right. that in particular on, on girls who tend to use social media at much higher rates and, and really seems to be having huh. negative repercussions. And, and with the boys, it's the video games. With the boys, it's the video games. games and it's yeah. interesting, you know, I, I heard Jonathan Haidt uh, speak recently. I don't know if he's been on the show, but you know, he writes a lot about this. And, he, you know, he, he was saying that, look, it is the boys are on the video games. And as much as uh, flack as video games get, they're probably mostly harmless. <laughs> you know, it may be a waste of time. Uh, but, you know, if yeah. they're playing it together and they're bonding, whatever. It's the opportunity whatever. cost. Yeah, right. exactly. The, the, but the social media, which, again, is in general much higher for the girls, you know, that you really have, uh, you know, concerns that that may be linking to these higher rates of anxiety to the suicide uh, ideation that, you know, that on, that the problem is you have these dynamics that have always played out for adolescents in terms of feeling left out, in terms of feeling, uh, you know, like you're, you're not being included. And now because of social media, you know, if your friends are doing something fun without you yeah. and that that's yeah. been very tough for a lot of people. No, I, I bring YouTube into my classes uh, sometimes. My literature classes where you can get Jack Kerouac uh-huh. reading yeah. uh, from, from his books or T.S. Eliot, you know, reciting The Wasteland. Uh, this is this is stuff kids uh, kids need to be need need to be shown. So all right, so uh, those were two theories. Oh yeah, third theory. Okay. So there, there, let's finally talk about what's happening in the schools. Uh, and here the theory is that in the last ten years, it is true that we have been working on a new goal, and the new goal is to get lots more kids ready 
uh, to for college or for a well-paid career. In other words, yep. to aim for much higher standards than just basic literacy and numeracy. You know, again, we had made a lot of progress on those more basic standards back in the in the 90s and 2000s, and it made sense to shift our sights higher. Uh, that is the goal of the Common Core standards. That, of course, yep. have been a lot of controversy. New tests that came along with those standards are much more difficult. New accountability systems that were much more focused on getting kids to these higher standards. Uh, and a new curriculum pegged to these higher standards. It's certainly possible that right now what schools are doing is they're trying to aim for this higher level of instruction, which may be good for the high achieving kids or some of the kids in the middle, but may be so over the head of the lower performing kids that they may actually be be losing ground. And And I think this is the great challenge that our schools are facing today is how do you aim for these higher, more rigorous standards, which I think yeah. we would all agree is 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 the right goal, but also figure out how to help kids who might be two, three, four grade levels behind catch up. It is just a very difficult technical problem, educational problem, political problem. I've worked with some states on on standards recently, and you can see them trying to elevate the activity to make them more critical, analytical readers, to evaluate what they read. And often I've, I've had to say, you know, you're asking them to perform these tasks and you're presuming that they know enough about the material right right, right that i mean right. that they're not even close i mean the, yeah those top 20 percent they're amazing but you know they're the, you know five ap courses in, yep. in 11th grade right. but you get out of that top 20 percent. there's no way that they can possibly do a lot a lot i mean it's a good ambition yeah but yeah. we've got to we got to be realistic well and and look if if you start in elementary school, you could do a lot. You could say that, you know, we're going to we're going to give kids a content rich curriculum like Don Edie Hirsch has been arguing for forever. Uh, we're going to build their content knowledge in history and social studies and science and geography. And we're going to give them the basic uh, foundational literacy and we're going to do a great job on math. And, you know, you could really build it. Uh, but we haven't done that in many elementary schools. And we still, after all these years of talking about education reform, we still have a system where we keep passing kids along whether they've learned the material or not. So, you know, we still have, you know, middle schools that have to figure out how do we deal with sixth graders who are working at a third grade level right. and high schools that have to figure out how do you do ninth graders who are working at a sixth grade level. You know, we, we haven't solved the fundamental problem, which is that we need to get kids on track uh, early so that they can actually do these higher level, this higher level work later on. And, and we have an added problem that you've written about uh, recently, just last week as well, that we bring in a new set of standards. We bring mm -hmm. in a strong curriculum, but the implementation by individual teachers in the classroom mm -hmm. is being blunted by, you know, the ordinary processes of, of inertia. You know, people do what they're yep. accustomed to do. But also a lot of the teachers you have found in a study that you, you, you write about here that the teachers are actually going to bad sources. Yeah online. What's yeah. going on there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this has been one of the most interesting and, and in some ways, well, not, maybe not surprising, but disappointing findings for, for a long time now is that when people survey teachers and say, where, where do you get your curriculum from? You know, you, you might think, oh, well, they go down to the textbook room and they get their, uh, you know, textbooks or they get their uh, novels. You know, the answer that keeps coming back is Pinterest. 
Right. <laughs> Pinterest. <laughs> you know, you think, I'm pretty sure that the teachers over in Singapore or in other high-performing countries are not going to Pinterest for their curriculum. Uh, but, you know, what this indicates is, first of all, in a lot of places, there still is no curriculum. There's literally no curriculum. You know, that the teachers handed a, a key to their classroom and says, good luck. Mike, what is the difference between standards and curricula? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it, and there's a relationship. There should be. I mean, the standards tend to be a... a, a basically a list that says, okay, here's what we want, say, third graders to learn in math in, in, uh, in English language arts. You know, they should be able to, they need to know their times tables, you know, to 10 by 10. They need to be able to write a paragraph, you know, they need so, to be so able to. So stand, standards do not prescribe certain that's right. textbooks. That's right. That, so they don't get into the, the exactly what or the exactly how. And so you got to flesh that out with a curriculum. Uh, and in a lot of cases that just doesn't exist or the ones that existed that for a long time, these t big textbook publishers were selling stuff that wasn't very good, you know, and they'd go out and buy the, uh, the superintendent's a steak dinner and they'd get a big contract and, uh, you know, well, there's been more attention on curriculum lately, which is good. And there's been some better materials produced and I, it's starting I, I to get say out there. Fordham does a very influential evaluation of states. Of standards. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and on the curriculum front, we're, we're seeing a lot of good work out there. And there's starting to be both the, the old line publishers are publishing better stuff. And there's been some new nonprofit upstarts doing good stuff. And it's starting to get out there. It's still only in maybe 15 or 20 percent of the schools. After all these years, they have a really strong curriculum. But even then, we see that teachers end up going online to supplement the curriculum that they've got. And what they will say is, look, that there's something missing in the curriculum. Uh, either it's boring, they think it's boring, and so they're going online looking for more engaging, interesting lessons, or it doesn't help them with this problem we talked about a minute ago, which is that uh, it's a great curriculum for kids who are on track, who are on grade level, but a lot of their own kids are not on track. They're way below grade level, and so they're going online to look for, for some resources. Unfortunately, the major sites that are out there, like one called Teachers Pay Teachers, Share My Lesson, uh, Read, Write, Think, uh, a lot of the materials, or at least the most popular materials that the teachers are downloading, tend to be not very good. You, you, well, your your numbers are 64% of these materials were rated, quote, not should not be used or <laughs> yes. probably not worth using. Yeah. Two-thirds. Right. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of the most popular lessons getting downloaded are, right, not worth using or not very good. That's a problem. They And they, you know, the problem is they they tend to be the biggest problem, I would say, is that they weren't very challenging. They, they were pitched at a very low level of cognitive demand. Uh, and a lot of other problems, they just weren't aligned to the standards that they said they were aligned to. So, you know, and you can't fault the teachers if they're saying there's some need they've got. They're going out there looking for something. OK, but uh, but the stuff they're finding isn't great. And so what we're saying in this study is, hey, can't can't we figure out a way to make sure that that these materials teachers are finding are both useful to them, but still high quality and still are going to get kids where they need to be. Is there a, a growing recognition that we, we, we can't just create good standards, mm -hmm. uh, that if we don't have them reinforced by curricula all the way into the classroom, uh, yeah. you know? No, absolutely. Look, <laughs> I, I, I think that in the early days of education reform, we believed that if we set high standards and held schools accountable, they would they would get their act together and they yeah. would do things that were hard to do politically, maybe, uh, but uh, but they would finally do them. I think what we learned was that there was just way less know-how in the system than we thought, uh, that 
it was certainly a problem in some schools. The problem was, you know, the teacher union contract and the bureaucracy and all of that wasn't uh, making good decisions for kids. Uh, and that's still a problem today. Uh, but there's also this other aspect that there just was not the know-how. That you, it's shocking. There's a lot of elementary schools out there. They do not know how to teach reading. They don't know the science. You know, they, there's, there's, you know, middle schools and high schools that just do not know what to do with kids who come in below grade level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a shocking lack of know-how in the system. Uh, and, and some of that's because we haven't done a good job on educational research. And some of it, I, I don't know. It's, it's uh, uh, probably the nature of having a system of 14,000 local monopolies, right. uh, you know, that, that are not terribly uh, well-run, effective organizations. Uh, last question. In the in the political campaigns going on right now on both sides, Republican and Democrat, we're not hearing very much talk about education. Why is that? Yeah, no, it's it is true. I mean, now in my little corner, of course, we're obsessed with any any breadcrumbs we get from any <laughs> candidate, and we analyze it. Uh, you know, nine ways to Sunday. Look, I think uh, education was was a big topic for a long time when the politicians were really trying for the center. You know that. You think about George W. Bush, you know, no with child Teddy left, Kennedy. Yeah, with Teddy Kennedy and no child left behind and and compassionate conservatism. That was a time in, in say in the 2000 election when he was really trying to win over independents, independent women, moderate suburban women, you know, and, and talking about education was an effective way to do that. Now, I think he also in his heart of hearts cared a lot about the issue and, and had had some success in Texas. Yeah, obviously, we're in a very polarized place right now and everybody's playing to their base. Uh, and and both, education just, you and, know, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Education doesn't no, doesn't it, play well in that in environment. Fact, it, it splits each party. You know, the Democrats are completely split between the, the teachers unions who want to go back to just spending money and get rid of charter schools and get rid of school choice and get rid of accountability. And some of the reform crowd, the civil rights groups and some others within the Democratic coalition and, and uh, you know, people of color who very much support charter schools, who support testing. So, right. And then you see similar splits in the Republican Party. So, it, you know, as the center does not hold, it's a difficult time for education reform. I, I think, I, Mike, I think, I think you're absolutely right about yeah. that. I, th- I think you've, you've pinpointed the issue. Yeah. Uh, Mike Petrilli of the Fordham Institute, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark.